The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So one of the interesting um, teachings of the Buddha is the idea that we're identified or recognized by uh, the things we're preoccupied about. So if, um, if I'm preoccupied with all the email that I could possibly get in a day and I'm sitting here and, you know, I give some teaching and then I look at my phone and give a little more and look down, you, you would say that Gil's, you know, preoccupied with his little device and looking at the email. And so I would be identified or recognized as being preoccupied. And so I would be the email checking Dharma teacher. And um, so you can kind of tell that some people are preoccupied by all kinds of things. Some people are preoccupied like, you know, with things in the world. You see them, they're kind of, some people are, live in the world afraid. It's not so uncommon. And you can kind of see that they're always checking things out, always looking, trying to be safe. And so there's a certain kind of preoccupation with fear. So they're recognized as being someone who's afraid. If someone is uh, really concerned with uh, finding work and they're really concerned about it, uh, reasonable enough to be concerned, but really preoccupied with it, trying to find work, and everything they think, all their thoughts have to be work, 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 then uh, they'd be recognized as someone who's preoccupied with work and kind of recognized or identified as someone seeking work. So we can go through an infinite number of things that people are preoccupied with. And the important thing is to recognize that people do get preoccupied, meaning they get fixated or caught in some kind of concern that they can't easily drop and put down. So they get, uh, you know, a certain kind of drive or compulsivity with uh, what they're concerned with. Some people, they're concerned with their status or their, you know, conceit. And so you can kind of, you know, um, so you can see some, some people, you can kind of tell, oh, that person's really fulfilled with themselves, with conceit. And so, and so we would, um, you know, identify that person being, you know, having a lot of conceit. And, and um, so we're to kind of define but what we're concerned with. Um, if the mind is not preoccupied with something and is just free and relaxed and open, then we become a person, in teachings of the Buddha, that cannot be um, recognized as being caught up in something. It's obvious, right? And, uh, and in fact, you, uh, it said that um, the forces of Mara, Mara being the forces of distraction, forces of, of uh, temptation, forces of kind of unskillful forces within us, um, they, won't, they won't find a person who's not preoccupied. So say that you have a tendency towards anger. If you're preoccupied, the anger will find the preoccupation and find you and get, can you, somehow you get caught by it. If you have a lot of greed or a lot of fear, then the underlying movements towards you know, greed or to hate or confusion or, will come up and kind of latch onto that and drive it or push it or fuel it in some way. But if we're, uh, at f we're free, the mind is free and unpreoccupied by things, undriven by things, then Mara f doesn't find the person, can't recognize the person, can't identify the person. And, um, and uh, there's a great um, Zen story 
I think it's nice, that's great, but it's kind of an interesting one, of uh, in China, Chan story, of um, there was a, apparently a famous psychic, something like that, people who could read minds and had great ability. And he wasn't particularly, he wasn't an enlightened person, but just had this kind of ability to kind of read people's minds. And, and, um, and was kind of into, enamored with wonderful states of meditation, wonderful emptiness, wonderful, all kinds of wonderfulness, the Disneyland of spiritual life. And, um, and then there was a, a Zen master, renowned Zen master is recognized as being a great, great Zen master. And um, so this, the two of them met and the psychic was going to read the Zen ma- ma- uh, master's mind and thought to tune into something really fantastic. And I think they were sitting at the edges of a river where there were sailboats going by and the psychic was just completely perplexed because when he looked into the mind of the Zen master, all he saw was a river with boats going by. <laughs> you know, in terms of great, you know, great, you know, the Disneyland of, you know, spiritual attainments. It's like, what? <laughs> Sailboats going by? And um, so, you know, he, he couldn't be identified in some ways. Just, just, just the experience of simple things he was seeing at the moment was what wasn't caught up in it, but that was just going by. And so, uh, so one way to become free, one way of defining it is, and understanding it is when we're uh, giving up the idea of being preoccupied, being fixated uh, uh, with things. And as we do that, then um, in, the, in the Buddha's way of looking at things, you cannot be identified. You, somehow you can't recognize someone if they're not preoccupied. Now, of course you can recognize someone. You know, you know their name, you see what they're doing, they're sitting meditating, they're having lunch, whatever. Of course you can see the, all kinds of things about them, man, woman, or some other gender. You can identify them, but um, but uh, to really identify them, to really know someone, the tendency is we know people by their preoccupations. Whether you know, sometimes they're wholesome preoccupations, but there's something about when people are not preoccupied by anything, the mind is free, that there's a certain kind of way of identifying them that can't happen. It doesn't mean that they disappear, there's like Mr. Natural who's not really there or something. Um, it means that uh, uh, the ordinary way in which people function in the world and the way we see each other, relate to each other, um, is not really there for that person. The person is free. Uh, you can't see something. You, can't re- you don't really see, you don't really know them by their preoccupations then. So if we look at our own minds and how it operates, I, we do the same thing to ourselves. We recognize often ourselves by what we're preoccupied with, what we're caught up in. And, um, and it often, what we're caught up in and preoccupied with kind of drives us and moves us and, you know, in directions. And, and, um, and so one of the arts of practice is to learn to put down or relax or soften our preoccupations, have them fade away. Uh, very few people have a magic button inside and say, okay, stop being attached. You push the button and reset and life is great. Um, you know, that if only, only um, our attachments were just in the cache, uh, the com- you know, like a co- cache in the computer, you, you can empty the cache and then the computer starts fresh all over again with the, lots of memory. So if only, you know, our attachments were stored in our cache and we could just empty it nicely. But there is no such thing. So generally, 
what we do is we, it, uh, we can count on it fading away. The Buddha once uh, said in his spiritual life that he was teaching, there's no frog leaping. No leaping like a, leaping like a frog. Uh, meaning you kind of just leap into the next, you know, stage of maturity. But the tendency often, uh, often in that early tradition is talking about it being a gradual path. Um, he talked about um, the, just like the Ganges rivers flows eastwards, downwards, steadily and inclines eastward because that's downhill even though it's relatively flat on the plains of India. So uh, the same way that um, our, our, when we practice, the mind inclines, leans towards, flows towards freedom. And that idea of a river flowing is not an image of a frog leaping, you know, a waterfall. Some of us want to have the waterfall approach to spiritual life, just get there quickly. And, but the idea of it's gradually... So, so the word that's very important in the 16 stages of breathing is fading away. The things fade away. And, um, and the fading away occurs when a person has a deep understanding, deep insight into impermanence, into how things arise and pass. And impermanence, the word is anicca in Pali. And uh, you find people, some people have been around our scene for a long time, they'll say anicca rather than saying impermanent. And um, anicca comes from the word nicca, and nicca means constant. And a means not constant. And there's an important difference between, say, in English, saying impermanent versus saying not constant. The difference is that um, many people, when they hear the word impermanent, say it's not going to last. You know, it's, everything's impermanent, you know, I have to, everything's going to go sooner or later. And I have to accept the fact, these Buddhists keep saying it, we have to accept that everything's impermanent, meaning I have to accept that everything's going to go someday. It's going to come to an end. And, uh, you know, I hope it stays for a while. But the idea of inconstant means that it, um, it, it can return, it reappears, it reoccurs over and over again. So like our breathing... The, the, if you go into the details of breathing, it's an inconstant phenomena. The in-breath comes and goes, but it's not impermanent in the sense it's going to, in, in hopefully soon, not today, going to stop once and for all. Um, you know, someday it'll stop. And so the same thing, so, but it's inconstant. The in-breath is there, it disappears. The exhale appears, it disappears. Then the inhale reappears, it disappears. So the word anicca is more, means more inconstant. So in terms of uh, this insight into impermanence, which is step 13 in these uh, four, 16 breathing exercises, um, it arises uh, after the mind is concentrated enough, settled, composed, quiet, and really in the present moment, and no longer has its usual preoccupations that keep the mind from being present. There might be attachments operating, but, but uh, nothing that keeps us, pulls us away. And the most common thing are the five hindrances. That's the five, five things that are listed in the text. So we're not caught up in sensual desire. We're not having sexual fantasies. We're not think, or food fantasies, or, you know, comfort fantasies, or more comfortable Zafu fantasies. Uh, we're just kind of really present that way. 
we're not caught up in aversion. We don't have hostility and anger and resentment towards people and work last week and repeating, repeating it. Or we're not focusing on resentment to all these people who are here. It would be a lot better, a lot quieter if there was no one here today. <laughs> Just you. And, uh, you know, and so that's the mind's caught up in aversion or sloth and torpor or restlessness and anxiety or doubt. And it's such an important thing to learn to have these settle away. And that so much so that sometimes in the tradition they're, uh, it's referred to a ki- as a kind of liberation. Because when your hindrances have abated, they're not controlling the mind. So you're free of them. And the advantage of that is that then finally, that takes a while, but finally when you can have that, then you can really be here. And the experience of really being here and settled here, and you can you know, feel the mind doesn't want to go anywhere else. You know, or it might begin going, but it just comes right back. It's just so good to be here. It's like such a relief. Ah, finally, just, I'm just here. <laughs> not, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not going anywhere with my mind, and it's just like the best place to be. Why would I go anywhere else? It's so good to just be here, grounded, present here in the mind. That's a point where we can use the attention, the concentrated attention, to start seeing the inconstant nature of our experience. Not necessarily impermanent nature in the sense of once and for all it ends, but how it comes and it goes. And, um, and uh, you can see it in many ways. One of the ways you can see it is, um, you can see it in daily life sometimes, and the, the uh, place that I kind of have done it sometimes if you, is driving, provided you can do this and drive safely is um, uh, if you really pay attention to where your attention is while you're driving, you'll see that your attention is jumping around all the time. Good driving requires attention is jumping around, right? And um, so you need to look in the rear view mirror, in the side view mirror, turn your head and look, look ahead that way, look ahead that way. You're constantly moving and shifting your attention. If it's second nature, you don't consciously do it, but it's still constantly shifting. You might be listening to uh, something on the radio, you might be thinking about something, you might be having a conversation with someone in your car. There's a lot of different data coming in and your mind is moving between it all. And you might be preoccupied by something and uh, in your preoccupation, uh, say you're preoccupied with being re- feeling really angry. And, and in your mind, here I am angry again, I'm always angry and I'm completely angry, I'm going to be angry all day, probably all month, because, you know, this is solid and fixed, this is how it is, I am angry. And, um, but if you look, uh, really pay attention to where, you know, what you're paying attention to, a police car pulls up behind you in the car, behind you, you're driving down the freeway, they're really close, right up behind you. There's no siren on, but they're like right on your tail. And, um, Chances are, for a few moments, you're not going to have any thought or any awareness of you being angry. That's going to out of your mind for a moment. And then they zip around you and leave. They didn't want anything to do with you. And so you feel the relief. And now you no longer feel the fear. That's gone. But now you feel the, the, you know, you feel relief. Still no anger. But of course, then you, oh, I should be thinking about my anger. That's so, impo- that, that's so important. 
Then the car in front of you uh, starts to slow down. So oh, I better be careful. And so for a few moments, you don't. And if you start paying very careful attention moment by moment, you see that every time your eyes and your attention focus on something else, the rear of your mirror, the side of your mirror, the car over there, this there, that um, your anger is not always there. It's, it's the predominant thing that's... But we tend to identify it as the thing. But in fact, attention is actually shifting and moving. And it turns out the anger is not, so, not there as often as we thought. It comes and goes. So it's little, but the analogy that um, is sometimes used is, you know, you take a flashlight or a fi- fire stick with a fire at the end in a, in a dark, very dark night. And if you spin that thing around like this in the dark, what you'll see from a distance, you'll see a full circle of light. But we know that the, the, fire, the tip of the fire stick, the flame, is not in all those places at once. It's kind of an obstacle illusion that the mind kind of ties it all together into, into a circle. If the person started to slow down, you'll see it's only in one place at a time. So, um, uh, so like this, you know, if there's uh, spokes of a, uh, of a gear spinning around, you might just see it as one big circle. But if you slow it down, 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 eventually you start seeing that there's spokes and just with gaps in between. So the same thing, as the mind gets very still and concentrated, we start seeing that things are actually arising and passing all the time. And, uh, and we, don't, we don't generalize, we don't have this optical illusion that, oh, this is permanent. This is, I'm just angry. That's, the, that's, you know, or I'm just this way, or I'm just this way. And so we start uh, seeing that, in fact, things are actually arising and passing. They're inconstant all the time. And that experience of seeing things as being inconstant is considered a very important phase of Buddhist practice. Our relationship to ourselves and the world uh, has a chance to begin shifting because we no longer see permanence. We no longer see that it's always this way. Things arise and things pass. Things arise and things pass. And the most cherished attachments we have, the most cherished views, cherished preoccupations, cherished ideas that we have, that we think it's this way, it's very hard to hold on to them that as being this is always this way because they're not always that way in the moment-to-moment arising and passing. But we have to slow down enough so we're not generalizing, like you know, generalizing with a fire wand. And so that's the function of getting concentrated and still and no longer having the hindrances operating and being able to sit there and sit back in a comfortable, relaxed, pleasant way at ease and keep the attention open, awareness open, mostly not not working at seeing all this, but as we get settled and settled, it gets revealed to us. This This is what we see. Just like if you slow down the fire wand you'll see that it's, you know, it's just one flame at a time. Um, or if you slow down the, uh, the, you know, in the old days when they had the, you know, movies, you know, these eight millimeter movies, and if it's, you know, if, um, if they go to the movie theater and they play it at the regular speed, you get 
pulled into the drama, you're preoccupied with it, you're concerned about it, you feel sorry for them, you're in love with them, it's like the whole world that you're into. But then they decide to slow down the, the projection, projection, say by a factor of 10, and one slide shows up, another one slows up, you know, and it's just wonderful love scene, and they're about to kiss. Another, you know, it's like, you, you know, it, you know, it, all the drama and all the interest and, you know, all the kind of identification with the scene disappears, like just a photograph. And, um, and, uh, and so it tends to shift our relationship to it. And we realize that this idea that there's movement, that's part of the optical illusion that the mind creates. There's no movement on the screen, actually. It's all created by the mind, how it ties things together. So, uh, so this idea also applies to what goes on in our minds when we're experiencing anything at all. Not that we see things as an exactly like an optical illusion, but uh, we do tend to impute or apply permanency to things that are not really that permanent. And so as we settle down, we're not thinking so much anymore, preoccupied so much anymore, we see arising and passing of things. We see that things are in awareness for a moment, and then they're not in awareness because something else has come into awareness. And so there's a constant shifting and moving going on, constantly changing and going on. And, um, and then if things aren't permanent, if things aren't constant, and we're just right there, that allows us to start kind of not holding on so hard, not staying so preoccupied, not being fixated on things but being able to settle back further, relaxing further. And that relaxing further is called, uh, it involves a process called fading away. Fading away of attachment. Fading away of our way of, of, of not what we're preoccupied with, but fading away of, of the preoccupation itself. Does that make sense? So the inconstant nature is a very important insight of this practice here. And I'll say more about how it works and how it's important. But I thought that, um, I'm hoping that because it's so in- such a significant insight, and maybe you've never heard it presented this way, that I thought it would be very important for you to have a chance to talk about it uh, together. W- w- what do you think of what I said? How, does, how do you think it relates to you yourself? How can you apply it to yourself? Uh, what's been your experience of this inconstant nature of phenomenon? Um, uh, how is it, um, you know, you know, in what way might it be useful or meaningful for you to take this into account and really kind of live with these ideas that I said? Does that make sense? So before I break you up into the chance to discuss it among yourselves, um, do you have any questions for clarification about what I said? So that you go into your discussion having all your questions answered. There. Just remember to say your name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pauline. Hmm? Um, I'm not clear about the preoccupation. If the mind is jumping from one thing to another, then you see the impermanence or the movement. the displacement of one thing by another. For example. But if, you ha- if there is a commonality to the type 
of preoccupation are if, if somebody's in a planning mode or yeah. fearful about yes. not uh -huh. taking care of things, the things will appear di yeah. like they're fading away, the individual things. But the preoccupation with being fearful... Keeps returning. Pardon? Keeps returning. Keep returning. Yeah. yeah. So yes, yes. So that definitely that's, that's the case. And uh, that's happening all the time for... You know, in fact, that's what's happening all the time when we're preoccupied or in a fixed mood, like the fear. Um, however, if, you can, if you're settled and relaxed, so remember this process of the 16 stages, by the time you get to seeing the inconstant nature of things, you're pretty settled and here. And if you see a fear arise, and you see it go, and rise and fear and go, um, uh, if you want to do, you know, you see how regular it is, it might be useful to do some therapy, for example, really get to the, some, understand it better. But the meditative, meditation process is not to do therapy on yourself, seeing it, but rather see that it's arising and it's passing. You know, who am I when it's not there, in that gap? When it's the, from the time that it's passed and before it arises again, what, what, what are you feeling then? What's the alter what, what else is going on? And you realize it's, it's, not, it's not the whole picture. It's not all of who it is. And so the relationship to that fear it, during that stage of relaxed attention, um, uh, the relationship we have to it becomes much more easeful. Rather than the fear controlling us, we're in control of ourselves and we see the fear just arise and pass. It's just a phenomenon that comes and goes we don't have to be reactive to it. We don't have to buy into it. We don't have to be concerned about it. We don't have to fix it. We find ourselves kind of free as we watch it rise and pass, like a movie on a screen. So, <coughs> if you, you, remem you remember that you didn't pay a bill, that's... I can't hear you. Hold it closer. So, if you, re you remember that you didn't pay a bill that's coming due, or you remember that there's another bill or, yeah. or so this so a bunch of these little things pop up and you become aware and they're not permanent they do fade away something takes its place but are you saying then that um, the commonality of the preoccupation is is not our the what we're paying attention to. We're no, just yeah, pay yeah. Is that, yeah. okay. But in the meditation. You in might the meditation. You might also, so, you, so if you see how, it, you, if, you, if you know that these are coming and going, then suddenly you remember the bill you didn't pay, you, oh, you know, this is only going to be there for a moment, that thought. Right. And you just let it go, as opposed to, oh, I better think about this. This is really important. And then you start having uh, bill-paying thoughts for the next hour, and then uh, everyone's going to notice and see she's preoccupied about her bills, <laughs> and that's a bill preoccupied person. You're, you know, you, that's that will know you is that by by that. That's. I, I just wasn't sure whether yeah. we're supposed to maybe notice that there's a commonality, and that, and I was going too far with it. In ordinary life, it might be useful to do that, see commonalities. And what I'm talking about now is a particular context of deeper and deeper meditation practice. And here it gets simpler and simpler and simpler. It actually gets simpler than that. It might be that you see, not that it's a, a, a thought about the bills, you see it's a momentary thought. You know, it's so momentary. and you, you know, what, the, what the thought is about doesn't concern you. you let, let the mind think whatever it wants. You just notice that it arises and it passes a thought. 
and, and then the drive to keep being involved in thought, the fuel for the thinking, begins to fade away because we just let it be a thought. And that maybe you heard me say the difference between thinking and thoughting. Most people, thoughting is what the mind does. It produces thoughts. Thinking is when we get involved in the thought. And so if you're really deeply settled in meditation, you can have a thought. That's what the mind does. It comes and it goes. Here, Jim. Okay. It seems like it, uh, Jim. <clears throat> it seems like it uh, would be <clears throat> useful to think. And um, I can think of at least two layers of this. Um, so, say you're in an, you might call it a mood or a mode, anxious mode. It could last for an hour or two, and then on top of that are the things like you know a bill to pay and you're anxious about uh, the boss and and this and that so one has a more frequent coming and going but it's sort of fueled by the underlying mood right Right. and then that's going to go and change you'll be in a different mood that might how long it stays how long we see it stay and pass might it might stay seem to stay much longer however the point being that if you're really still and quiet you'll see that even a mood actually comes and goes into awareness much more frequently. So a mood might be really strong. It might be, let's say that in, in, um, in 60 seconds, say there are 60 different things you think about or notice in the mind. If 25 of those seconds have to do with being angry, it might, we might just think, I'm just angry. That's, just, that's a constant state I'm in. But if we were only angry for five seconds, we'd see that it came and went much more. If we thought about our bills for two seconds, you know, it's just there and there it comes and goes, but the 25 seconds of the anger makes us think, well, I'm just in an angry mood. But if we slow down enough so that 60 seconds get spread out over five minutes, 60 rising and passings over five minutes, then we see clearly oh, it's only 25 times that the anger comes and goes. Uh, so the, mo- the moods are not constant either, even, even over that hour. It's just that in ordinary life, in ordinary life it seems like it's constant. But remember, keep remember, I, we're talking about a deep meditation practice now. And there, even your moods will appear, come and go. And it's quite something to see that everything is in constant, everything is coming and going in this particular place. And it begins shifting our relationship to it in meditation but it might also shift our relationship to it outside of meditation. And one of the ways is we, in meditation we see everything arising and passing. There's a, uh, it makes it a lot easier to understand how not to identify with it, how not to get involved with it. Just watch it go by. And to learn that, that sense of just letting it be can translate into daily life. We come back and we know, we feel that something is more, stays longer like anger, but we're much more inclined just to let it be and not get involved, and not get preoccupied. Does that make some sense? Is that addressing your question? Yes. Great. And you can move it, move it, pass it in the back, and then we'll have Bill speak. Yeah. Gil, do you think that this method can be useful for people who experience chronic, severe body pain that just seems like a solid wall? Yeah, absolutely. When you and, get practiced and, uh, enough, you can see that, it's, that there are gaps. Oh, yes. Way. I mean, it's one of the great things to do with pain 
is to bring very careful attention to it, very focused and concentrated attention to it. And, and if you really f- very focused, it stops being pain. It becomes uh, heat and tightness and pulling and searing and stabbing. And you see, and you really feel, where exactly is it? For exact location. Like I just do a lot of this when I had knee pain. <clears throat> and uh, just really feel it. And it turned out there was just a little square centimeter. That's all it was. You know, look, that's not a big part of my life. And, you know, as I was controlling my life, this little centimeter of pain. And then if I dro- went really bore into it, I saw that it actually uh, had no location because actually it was, ju- and that centimeter was jumping around. It appeared and disappeared, was sparking into existence. But from a distance, looking at it, th- uh, the optical illusion of constancy, of permanency, it made me think, oh no, this is terrible. You know, it's constant, I'm always hurting. But when the mind is very concentrated, you'll see it sparking in and out of existence. And then the relationship begins to change. So you see that even the pain is just a um, construction of s- smaller things. Even the pain is a construction of more, more minute little momentary experiences that come and go. And, uh, now, you know, I'm not going to say that everyone can have access to this, but it is possible at times <clears throat> to really be there and feel pain and just, or I wouldn't even call it pain anymore, the intensity of it coming and going, sparking into existence. And it's a lot easier to be with then. Yes, please, in the back. Oh, I thought you were trying. Can you, Bill, can you bring it to her? She's been trying all this time. <laughs> what I hear In your name? Sophia. So, um... I hear you saying that um, the kind of awareness you're talking about is an off-the-cushion kind of deep meditation practice. But is there also room for something that may sound like therapy? And uh, you once said, uh, try tracking your motivations throughout the day. So, um, and I've done that. It's, It's very useful. But um, also, if I'm experiencing what you're talking about, say fear or, or over, I'm overreacting, um, I will do what you're t- what you're saying. I'm really intrigued by it. But what I'm doing now is I'm likely to say, uh, refer it to something that I'm, s- I'm specifically uh, preoccupied with on a general basis. Say uh, non-selfhood. So if I'm f- feeling fear about expressing myself in public, I, I'll say, oh, that's, that's ego attachment. And it sounds like therapy, but it's more a recognition, a flash of recognition. At Great, yes. That's where I've come to in my therapy practice, in my meditation practice. Interesting. Sounds really I, great. It sounds very, very wonderful. Oh. And um, the recognition is not therapy. Uh, uh, it's I mean, a part of therapy, but it's part of Buddhism. Clear recognition of what's happening. Um, some people would call it therapy <clears throat> if you then spend a lot of time uh, wondering what your, how your mother treated you as a child. You know, why did this come up? Where's it from? What's the cause? Um, ha- that's valuable to do too sometimes. But that kind of analysis and thinking back and remembering what t- might have happened to cause it, that's a different kind of analysis than meditation. And what happens is with, med- with mindfulness at some point, people start discovering um, the capacity to be free that comes from recognition. So please. Okay, so one more, Mary. 
I, um, I would appreciate it if you would um, kind of talk about the difference between the brain and the mind. Is I get I get kind of confused because I think I've always thought of like it's my brain I'm thinking. Yeah. I'm thinking. And yet when you talk about the mind it seems to me that it's a another entity outside of me. Oh. Or something. I, you know, so I'm I'm really not clear of how to differentiate between my brain that does my thinking, or that's where I do my thinking, and the mind. Yeah. So, um, I don't know if you need to make a hard differentiation. I think maybe for the most part, uh, the brain is what produces the mind. But the mind is, brain is like the hardware, and the mind is the software. The mind is the processing side. So, for example, um, all living human beings, I think, have brains, but each of us have different memories. Each of us have different impulses and intentions and different orientations and different perspectives and different memories and different ways of reconstructing the world and looking, interpreting things. And so the sum total of all this kind of, the, the way the, you know, the software operates inside of us would be called the mind. And that's, it's, it's quite varied. And sometimes in Buddhism, when mind gets really quiet, what we refer to as the mind is the capacity to know. And knowing is not, in, it's not maybe the brain is what it's knowing, but, uh, you know, when you're dead, you'll have a brain, but there's no knowing. So kind of like the mind is kind of the soft, kind of the operation that's there because we're still alive. That's not the, only the structure of the brain. That's something like that? Does that get to it? Starters. And, uh, and, and uh, good for storage. And so you have some, you know, so for example, you probably have recognized sometimes that your, um, your inner state, your inner way of quality of being felt happy or sad or angry, irritated or afraid. So there's kind of a mood. It's the mind that's really characterized. It's the mind that's, that's producing that or, or feeling that or knowing that. That's part of the mind too. Mind is not just thoughts. So if I was going to like visualize that, would the mind be a different, a different entity? Or, you know, like I, I, I start getting these visions of like there's the brain and then, then there's the mind, kind of like a fog or something. Well, see, the mind has no location. So uh, it's easy for people to imagine the mind being, uh, like our awareness of the mind being bigger than the brain or bigger than us, it's wider than us or small it's because it has no shape and size, we can kind of intuit all kinds of possibilities to it. It has no boundaries. Because it has no boundaries, it's kind of like a little bit arbitrary how we define it to ourselves. So some people will say that it's boundless. The mind is boundless because it has no boundaries. So, it, you know, you can't... If you use the usual language words like space, you know, spatial words or temporal words for the mind, you know, you, it, it doesn't really fit into that sh- shoebox so well. It's, it's, it's um, um, so, um, it's kind of like um, a rainbow. Like a what? A rainbow. 
it's there, the rainbow's there, kind of. But don't try to grab it. So it's not, it's not an energy or... Well, the electricity needs to be turned on. So the mind does, the brain does that. Yeah, so the brain has to go, the electricity has to go into the brain. If electricity goes off, it's like it's not good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. As long as electricity is going, you know, then, you know, the mind can do its thing. The brain does its thing, and the, basically the brain is what creates the mind. Oh, thank you. Okay. So, okay. I was hoping to have time for you guys to have a discussion, right? But maybe this is so important that... What? Let's say David. Let's have David do it. Then. So, um, in this process, when I do this kind of thing, the breath is part of it, but it, it's kind of more all over the place. So, you know, I come back and back to the breath, and, you know, but it's not this constant concentration on the breath. It can be. Um, uh, it, you know, as, you know it's, it's, not so much, it's not so intentional so much to look and see everything. So the mind can either be directed or it can be undirected. And so if it stays directed, then uh, you can just see this process, whole process of impermanence arising and passing, a whole experience of breathing itself. It all can reveal itself there. Um, more undirected, the mind's so relaxed and soft, uh, open that sometimes other things uh, uh, come into awareness and you see them as arising and passing as well. So it can be both ways. And some people do completely undirected with no particular focus on the breath and they just see everything arising and passing. So the, quest, the art of this is to know for yourself, what's most useful? Is it more useful to stay directed and stay put on the breath? Or is it more useful to open up and to, and, and different times, different ways is appropriate? I think mine is a hybrid. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fine. Okay, so um, I'm curious I'd like you to have a chance to talk about all this and hopefully you can uh, maybe about uh, let's take about 15 minutes or so and um, so what I could propose if uh, is you find one other person and um, and have a conversation back and forth about what this conversation this afternoon has evoked in you how is it useful for you how can you use this for your in your life how might it be useful for you and what are your reactions to this whole discussion about that we've made this afternoon, and uh, and anything is that's that's a vague enough that um, that you can find your way and f- see what you know see what comes up. What I'd like to recommend, strongly recommend, that when you have this conversation with your partner, think of it as a listening exercise more than a speaking exercise, meaning that uh, for you yourself. Maybe it's uh, almost not so important what you say, or let's say this way, it's not important that the other person get to know you better. You're not, but rather you're sparking in the other person new ideas and they're sparking in you. So you want to hear what they have to say more than you want to hear yourself. 
And um, so if you go on and on and on, you're losing a big opportunity. But if you're really, really brief, then, uh, you know, you don't benefit them. So you have to kind of find the sweet spot where you speak a little bit. And one way to do that is uh, really only make one point each time you speak. So like, you have maybe have a lot you could say about all this, but kind of stick with one point, say it, and then let the other person make a point and, and hear what they'd say. And then it's your time, your turn. And because you've heard them, that might, might, might spark new ideas for you you hadn't had before. So it's kind of like, make sure it's kind of a back and forth kind of conversation. Does that make sense? So, uh, so uh, if you can find someone um, and, um, and you can start and we'll take about 15, 20 minutes, I'll ring the bell. And then um, if you don't find someone to partner up with, walk towards the front towards me. And then you'll either find someone else who's walking to the front or I'll uh, ask a group, of, a, a pair to form one group of three. Okay. So we'll take a... <clears throat> one more break in a few minutes, but what I'd most want to hear from you, some of you, was not what you talked about, but how it was for you. How, did, how was it nice for you <clears throat> to do this way of talking? Say one point, let the other person make one point, hear what they say, let it impact you, and maybe see what new things come up for you. That, that process of talking, how was that for some of you? Mary can speak first. Since you're holding the mic. It's risky. <laughs> well, well, for one thing, I tend to talk too much, so it really helped me. <laughs> because I could, you know, just, just that little, that one spot thing. Uh-huh. And it kept me from just being, going on and on and on about nothing, you know. Perfect. <laughs> Let's, uh, someone else have a chance, please. Here. here. Yeah, that, w- <clears throat> that was very interesting. I, I had this kind of like layoff th- thought in the back of my mind that I was like, oh, it, I feel like I'm kind of asking all the, I'm asking questions but I'm not really talking but it was kind of going back and forth but every time it was going back to me I kind of like had a question <laughs> instead of really was talking and then I kind of relaxed into it and I was like well I'm not here to share something I'm I'm listening I'm I'm learning you know and that was very interesting but like I had this feeling that I was it was it was not yeah, I was mostly asking questions, and it, but it uh-huh. was pleasant. That sounds very nice for you, but uh, then you weren't providing them with the gift of some statement that you make. And the idea was, the idea was each of us offers a gift to the other by saying our point, and then so so then then they get to, then, then they get to be prompted to think in new ways. But you're probably asking good questions is also very good. Maybe one more? How many of you felt this was a good exercise? Just the exercise itself, besides the content. Great, great. So, um, 
So let's take a break. Uh, I think we probably have to do 15 minutes, but uh, let's not do more than that so we can come back for the last, just a little more than half an hour. So we'll start again here at um, five minutes to three. And you can talk now if you want during this next break.